Wanting a forever home is a dream many have. Perhaps building or buying your dream house becomes a life goal. The process can become overwhelming, costing people relationships and life savings, often falling into bankruptcy. What if you don't have the money, not even a job, to be able to afford your dream home, yet are consumed with the thought of it? Would you spend 18 months planning how to obtain the funds? Would you kill for the money if that was your only way of obtaining your dream home? This week's couple did. What is even worse is who they blamed in the aftermath for the deaths of two people. This is the case of Michael Millcroft and Anita Mansfield. And this is Murder Me on Monday. Hello everyone and welcome back to the Murder Me on Monday podcast. I'm Cameron and joined with me is Mother. Hello. Welcome to our newest Patreons, Hayley and John. Hope you figured out the app as we don't want you to miss out on early access when you have your road trips. Thank you both. It's really appreciated. And if you can't support on Patreon, a review on whatever app you use wouldn't go amiss, or even a message on social media. We like those and appreciate everyone who takes the time to contact us. I think for me, it's talking to people from all over the globe who are real people, not just scrolling some influencer's feed with carefully posed and edited photographs, and not always about the true crime, funnily enough. Getting a video of what looked like a green rolling British landscape only to see a kangaroo bounce off into the distance was the highlight of my week. I was supposed to be looking at the flooding, which was horrific, but I kind of got distracted by Skippy going along. The case recommendations from people's home countries that we've never heard of is always interesting too, as is being contacted by relatives of victims who sometimes tell us we've filled in some gaps in the family history. We've had that several times now yeah. for me. It's, it's, it's not jarring in a negative way, but it's like, oh, we're actually having an impact on someone. We're sort of providing someone that was close to it information. And it, and it feels kind of odd. It, yeah. it's, it's not the same thing, but it's like if you were to see yourself on television, it's like, oh, that's me. And then when someone contacts you, you go, oh, that's the person that was... Yeah. Huh, that's strange. And yeah. it kind of, it, it feels different. It, when we get those messages, I always end up being really worried. Yeah, I think, oh, I've said oh, something bad. Yeah, I've, exactly. I've called someone a twat somewhere that I shouldn't have done. Yeah. And I feel bad. But we, we do try and be respectful, but you always want, oh my God, did I say something? But luckily... No, it's not you, it's me. Well... It's not you, you're well behaved. You, you're like, <laughs> you've got the good manner, but I'm not. I'm, I'm not the bad cop, I'm the shithead. I'm the one that shouldn't be saying some stuff. Well, we've also got an update to episode 51 on David Fuller, if you didn't catch it on our social medias. The odd maintenance guy at the hospitals who decided necrophilia was a normal pastime. If you haven't listened to it, do go back. Is that the one with like a hundred different victims? Well, you're going to fill in some of the gaps here. You remember that this guy had 23 terabytes of information that it took months. Yeah, and as I'd said, how big a terabyte is, that's that's a lot. That's a, My computer's got about three or four terabytes in it, and that's quite a lot of storage. Yeah, well, I, it, me being me, I ended up thinking, what does that even look like on paper? And according to the geek forums I visited, one terabyte is equivalent to 19,156 volumes of 2,000 double-sided pages of A4, which was just text. I think when we said it before, a typical sort of case file box that you'd see in sort of like CSI or something, yeah, that would hold like a certain amount of data. Yeah, yeah. And then when you put it into perspective of how many boxes that would be, and you're like, oh, wow, that's a lot. That's like 5,000 of them. That's a lot of stuff. Mm. I, I mean, I know a lot of his stuff he had was videos and there were pictures, but 
and they take up more space than text. But on the 15th of December 2021, he was one of the very few that got a whole life order in the UK. In fact, he got two, mainly because of the two murders he committed, but his pastime probably had something to do with it. The update is that police have been plodding away, following up on various contacts from other forces, wondering if he was responsible for crimes committed in their areas. And at the beginning of November this year, he pled guilty to more charges. 12 counts of sexual penetration of a corpse and four counts of possession of extreme pornography between 2007 and 2020. He'd already been convicted of abuse of 78 corpses. So the latest apparently takes his known victims total to over 101, I believe. I'm sure there'll be more charges. And the report into what he did and how we did it, now was able to get away with it, was due to be released um, back end of this year. But there's more witnesses coming forward. So the, the date for this publication has been pushed to spring next year, 2023. So unfortunately, I was right when I said like 100 yeah. people. Yeah. Someone asked me this week if the cases and research gave me nightmares. And I can honestly say no. No, you have nightmares about me saying something like for moaning you about not getting chicken out of the freezer. Yes. That's what you have nightmares yes. about. Or, or me saying like, where's the cat? And getting annoyed at you. You don't have nightmares about the case. There's nightmares about me, which I don't know what that says. The reason I don't have nightmares is because I pick solved cases for a reason. Knowing that these murderers are locked away for life usually or dead and I'm not going to run into them at a 7pm run to the corner shop for something I've forgotten and absolutely have to have at 7pm on a bloody Sunday night. Although you have minded me for mentioning the IRA before, as if they're going to come after two podcasters in the UK. Yeah, it's just something that makes people twitchy. Not makes you twitchy. Yeah, it makes me twitchy, okay. But last week's case stayed with you, didn't it? The absolute randomness of it? I wouldn't say... It stuck with me. It bothered me more because for some reason I associated her with being a child because she was she was so young looking and she was so small. Yeah. I think you're you're gonna if someone's that small and looks that young in a way you're gonna assume they are younger than eighteen. Mm. You're gonna assume they're at the between like fourteen or whatever. And the randomness of it was obviously a factor because if you've done something, you've wronged someone, they've killed you, you don't agree with it, but you can see the rationale behind it. They've actually like kind of done something in the person's eyes to do it. But this was just totally random. Mm. It's no different than walking past a construction site and something falling off and killing you you've done nothing wrong you're just a bystander you just yeah. happen to get clapped up and in the same sense that she was just stood there waiting to get a bus to meet a boyfriend and then she got attacked by someone that seemingly didn't have a reason to do it no it wasn't like he was on drugs it wasn't like he was angry at her specifically i know she fit the bill for his like one of his partners and she just sort of he, like he, an amalgamation yes of it. yeah yeah but there was like she hadn't done anything wrong no. None of the people that we talk about have done anything wrong that deserve it, but it's you can understand the rationale behind why the person's done it. Yeah, exactly. I think once you hit the publish button, you tend to mentally archive the case. And this one you didn't. So it was actually unusual for me that you came and spoke to me about it the next day, which was, which was interesting. And I guess the difference is when it's by random, I can't disassociate myself from potentially being in their position because it is just random. You yeah. can when it's, when it's a random act of violence, you can by virtue of it being random, put yourself in their shoes. Because if you're not a bad person that, that bothers people and then they, they reciprocate the, the annoyance mm. or they retaliate with anger, you're just never going to happen to you. Yeah, yeah. But if you're just a random person and you get killed by a random act of violence, then you think, oh, fuck, that could happen to me. Yeah, well, this is not a random act of violence and I picked this week's case because of what I consider to be an absolutely bonkers motives. It was one of those cases you read about and you think to yourself, these people cannot have seriously believed that they would get away with it. 
but these two did and I still can't quite grasp just how stupid they were. I'd watched an episode of Killer in My Village from Sky, which UK viewers may know. Knowing that they had 45 minutes to fill the episode with pointless interview sound bites and repeating information, former police officers who were not even involved in the case giving their perspective, I was convinced that the show had a whole lot missing, so here we are. Let me take you to an English village called Hockliffe in Bedfordshire, population of around 700 people. Not much going on there except a lot of reports of accidents on the very busy A5 nearby. It's about four miles from a place people may know called Leighton Buzzard and about 20 miles south of the much larger Milton Keynes. Camera's looking at I was going to say I recognise that and yeah. I know why. Yeah, yeah, exactly. We've been there a lot. Yeah. So set back off the main road behind a petrol station in a detached house lived Mandy Joseph and Iris Jones. Iris was a very interesting character. Then aged 78 and suffering with heart problems, diabetes and failing eyesight, she and her late husband Clifford had been staples in the village for years. Her husband had built and run the petrol station at the front of their house for many years. Nothing like living on the job. But when he passed away in 1993, Iris and their son inherited the place. The couple's son also ran a car workshop dealing in, I believe, restorations of old vehicles from a building on the site of the house. So running a petrol station and shop is a full-time job. And Iris, then being aged around 66 and past retirement age, and her son not being particularly interested, had rented the place out, giving them a stable, passive income. Iris and her husband had only one child of their own. The reasons why they had only one and unknown, possibly couldn't have had more or didn't want more or just wanted to spread the love about. In the late 1950s, they started to foster children, eventually looking after 120 children over time, often being the only stable life that these children had ever had and often taking in multiple children from the same family. So foster home does imply that they're temporarily, aren't they? Until they find their forever home or until they age out of the system. Yes. So over the period of time of we don't know how long yet, she's... Well, it's until the mid-1980s, so okay. 30 years roughly. So her and her husband looked after or fostered 120 kids. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Apparently, they had anything up to 12 children in the house at any one time. And I'm pretty sure that wouldn't be allowed now, but the reports are it all worked. And this is not a case of a horror story about fostering. Just I was going to say that at the start. You always hear foster and you assume, oh, that's not good. Mm. You, you, always, you Unfortunately, you always assume the negative. It might be some kind of bias where you only hear about the negative. Yeah. You don't hear that, oh, that was good. It's, I think it's the same as BMW drivers being wankers. <laughs> you, you never notice them when they, when they actually indicate. It's when they don't indicate. You go, it's them. It's always them. It's probably the same with foster care. Well, you, don't, you don't hear about people that went through it successfully, do you? Well, we did. Episode 61 on Bonnie Hain where the foster parents fought alongside the child that they took in to get justice for his murdered mother. Remember the authorities, nobody believed him, but they always believed yeah. what that little boy had seen. I do remember because we spoke about it earlier because I remember this case specifically. Yeah. We, sp- we spoke about it because I said I remember this case. I don't want people to think that I didn't because <laughs> I, I said that they supported him the whole way through. And I, yeah. s- I think I said during the podcast that he hit gold there. Yeah, he did. Yeah, such this- a supportive family. Yeah. This couple as well were really were good guys. Absolutely no one had anything bad to say about them. 
In fact, they were so well-liked, many foster children stayed with them way past the usual cut-off age. And Mandy Joseph, who lived with Iris, was just one of these original children. She had originally been placed with Iris along with her brother when she was four. And Iris's caring nature seemed to bring out the same in Mandy herself. Mandy Marion Joseph, born on the 4th of July 1970. At the age of 34, she herself worked in a local care home for the elderly and also took care of Iris in her twilight years. Mandy wasn't someone who seemed to feel she'd missed out on being a teenager or a rebel. She was happy living the quiet life with Iris and working in a field that she loved. She was still in contact with her brother. There was still, you know... She has a caregiving role already, doesn't she? Yeah. That's what she does. And then looking after It runs through Iris. like Brighton Rock. Lots of the press reports say that Iris had adopted Mandy, but I can't find the root of that claim. As others later describe Mandy as her foster daughter and quotes from... Iris's son don't confirm that she was adopted either. Could that have been a case of her aging out of the system and then just effectively becoming her daughter? That's exactly how I thought. I think the villagers... Just then assumed. She, yeah. was, she wasn't legally adopted, but by the point of her becoming an adult, she didn't yeah. need to. Yeah. But she stayed around as her daughter because that's what, in effect, she was. Yeah, Mandy probably, in all, every likelihood, called her mum. So, yeah. yeah. Mandy never changed her name to Jones. So, again, it's probably bad reporting. As some even had her call her and her murderers step-siblings. And there was no marital relationship whatsoever. The date is Sunday the 20th of February 2005. Mandy had called in sick to her carer's job 10 miles away in Luton on the Saturday. And again on the Sunday. But late Sunday afternoon she popped into the garage at the front of the house. Which the house was actually well set back from. To get some cigarettes for Iris and some kindling and fire lighters. She and Iris were expecting a visit from another former foster child who they hadn't seen for a while and wanted to light a cheery fire for him and his family. At around 7.44pm, the emergency centre for a mobile phone company received an emergency call. On the end of the line was a woman screaming one word, and only managed to say it twice, help. And then the operator heard what they believed to be the sound of a gunshot. As they were trying to transfer the call to the police, the line went dead. I know it's a common occurrence in other parts of the world for emergency services to hear gunshots on a call, but in Middle England, not so much. The call is immediately escalated. And the phone is traced to Iris's house in Hockcliffe. Police dash to the address and find Iris, who was by now having to use a walking frame, dead from what they believe to be gunshot wounds by the sink in the kitchen. They later turned out to be two gunshot wounds. And Mandy was found dead in the lounge with gunshot wounds to her head, her face, her right forearm, a gunshot wound to her chest and another to her left hand, which appeared to have destroyed the mobile phone that she had been holding. The wounds were so bad, police initially said that they may have to get formal identification from dental records to actually identify the two. The police have a quick look about and saw a spot where a DVD player had been. Probably dust. We're all guilty of that from time to time. Clean, round stuff rather than moving it. And there was no handbags for either woman. 
Someone of Iris's age definitely would have had one. They're always clamped at the elbow. Even the Queen carried one. Hence the Platinum Jubilee skit with Paddington Bear and the Marmalade Sandwich, remember? Do you know that the Queen would keep chocolates and sweets in her bag? I know she carried a handkerchief. And I think she would specifically keep the candies and sweets and chocolates of someone that was always near her, but never lend them to them. And she knew that they were her favourites, but would never <laughs> give them to her. They were I hers. Didn't, know, didn't know that, but... So the police initially wondered if it was one of those burglaries that someone thought someone was wealthy and had gone charging in with a loaded gun and the victims had fought back. Even then with a gun, that's rare in the UK. Yeah, yeah. It's, it, maybe it was a mistaken identity. Maybe they were so inept or scared that they, they killed their victims by accident. It's just, it's just not a British thing. It's because home invasions, thankfully, not happening, especially in a village setting like this. Police helicopters are circling overhead. But the officers on the ground cordoned off the house and the garage and went door to door, while some went straight back to the garage to see if there was any CCTV of anyone driving or walking up the lane which went alongside the garage to the house at the back. There was, and thankfully a good quality one, as they could plainly see the registration plate as the vehicle left the property minutes after that 999 call had been made. Murderer's first mistake not thinking about CCTV because they were identified very quickly from that. And 24 hours after the murder, the owners of that vehicle seen on CCTV were traced to an address in Beckles in Suffolk. They probably didn't assume that CCTV would be common in such a small village of like 700 people. The village is older than America. It's a modern petrol station. All petrol stations have yeah, that's true. That's true. It's, it's you say it's like attached to the house, didn't you? No. It was part of the land, the, the garage is, the petrol station. Oh, that's something, I don't li- literally mean that their house was then <laughs> attached to where like the cash point is. It's all part of the, yeah. yeah, yeah. Beckles in Suffolk. It's a few miles away from Lowestoft. It's on the Norfolk coast, if you don't know it. For non-Brits, on a map, it will be the bulge to the right of the UK as it points towards mainland Europe. Beckles is almost 120 miles away from Hockcliffe, roughly two and a half hours drive. As I said, the police are there within 24 hours. At the address, they find Michael Milcroft, age 45, and 36-year-old Anita Mansfield, a 14-year-old boy and three younger children. There's a nine to 10-year age gap between Michael and Anita. So, so sometimes he's 45 and she's 36, and sometimes, you know, he's 46 and she's still 36. So, yeah. The police check out the car and they find a shotgun in the back. They immediately arrest Michael and Anita and the 14-year-old and they are taken back to Luton Police Station. And police immediately zoom in on the 14-year-old. In England, not sure if it's the same in Wales and Scotland or Northern Ireland, children have to have what is called a responsible adult with them if they're being questioned without a solicitor present. These people are volunteers who go through training and are basically are what's called in, in locus parentis. Their only role is to protect the child as a parent should until a solicitor is appointed and that's usually pretty quick. So it's not like these kids are left at the mercy of manipulative police officers as would happen in certain parts of the world, wouldn't it? Mm. This boy's tested for gunshot residue and found to be covered with it but in a pattern that suggested he was only present when the gun was fired, not actually holding a weapon. It was all down his front. One side, not spread across his body. Yeah. yeah. 
they get to digging into who Michael and Anita were and why they were at Iris and Mandy's house. And lo and behold, Michael, when 10 days old in 1960, had been given to Iris and Clifford as a foster child. He stayed with them for many years, even taking on their surname of Jones. Michael, well, we have very little on his background or even who he grew up to be. Do you know how long he lived with them for? I know you said a while, but do we know that? Many years. He was in Ooh, his 20s. I'll, I'll... Okay, that's more than many years. That's many decades. Well, Motherfucker's an adult. I, you could have been four by the time you got adopted by someone else. If he's been with them until he's 20, he's grown up with them. They are his family, not just his adoptive, sorry, foster family. Yeah. It's a bigger step than him being there for like a couple of years, going through infancy, and then moving on. Mm-hmm. He's like almost fully formed. Apparently, he had one job that they were able to find. He was called a pot boy or a pot washer in a pub. To me, a pot boy is the one that goes and collects the empty glasses where the customers are sat. And a pot wash is usually in the kitchen washing up dishes. It's not literally Cinderella style by hand. They have big, great big machines in pubs to do these things. But that's the only job they were relatively able to find for him. And that's when he meets Anita. Iris and Clifford even let Anita move in with them at one point. So she's closer to Michael. Everything's all tickety-boo. Until 1989. The whole family go on holiday to Mallorca. This does also imply, though, that he grew up with Mandy as well, doesn't it? Yes. She thought of him as an older brother. Yeah. Yeah. And obviously... Given the timelines, because if you're saying that then Anita moved in with Michael, Mm -hmm. that also mean that Mandy's there as well, obviously, as well as Iris. Yeah. 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 I'm I'm just sort of laying out the the tree, if you like. Yeah. Yeah. Well, they, they all go off to Mallorca and they include Anita in the holiday. Something happens. It's never clarified, but there's some sort of falling out. And when they get back, Michael walks away from his family for 12 years. I did wonder, due to the dates, if Anita and Michael wanted to get married, as Anita was possibly pregnant at the time, and Iris and Clifford maybe advised against it when they were all in Mallorca. Anita... I know nothing about, except she'd never worked and suffered with various undefined health issues. And Michael eventually became her carer. Being described in the news reports as a couple from Suffolk was a bit of a red herring. They'd only recently moved there. Previously, they had lived in Leighton Buzzard. The documentary said they moved a lot, but I couldn't find anything to confirm that. But the move to Beckles was unusual, perhaps. No mention of any family connection there. Certainly wasn't a job. Maybe they'd been evicted or it was just cheaper to rent there. I did wonder why they were not in council or housing association properties, but that's also missing from the reports. I think it's significant by this point that Michael no longer used the surname of Jones. No idea where the surname of Millcraft came from. Maybe it was his birth name and he just reverted to it. I don't know. Why Anita didn't use the name of Millcroft... I've no idea. They were married and it's still relatively unusual not to take your husband's name even now, except perhaps for professional reasons. There are... It's executives or, or doctors or someone. If you've got a degree, you can't be asked changing your name. It costs money. Yeah. I'll often keep it the same. Yeah. Or double barrel it. That 14-year-old boy mentioned, he's their eldest son. Yes, the one covered in gunshot residue. And his age ties into the 1989 fallout whilst they were all on holiday, doesn't it? 
25th of February 2005, Michael, Anita and the boy appear in court and are charged with two counts of murder and a conspiracy to obtain £800,000 by deception. The boy as well, as in the yep. the 14-year-old? Yeah. Okay. I'll explain the £800,000, where that come from, in a bit. The trial was scheduled for the 4th of March 2005, which is lightning speed, and to my mind a bit of a worry. But of course it's delayed until Monday the 21st of November 2005 when all three appeared at Luton Crown Court. The trial was scheduled to last six weeks, and for three defendants, that's pretty tight, isn't it? Six weeks doesn't sound much for that, but they all pled not guilty. The prosecution laid out their case. Do we know if that's against the wishes of the lawyers or not? I don't know how we'd be able to find that, but it sounds... How do you mean? The length of the trial? No, no, but they said they pled not guilty... I suspect it was when you hear what their defence was. That's why I'm asking it, because I don't know what their defence is going to be. If it's shit, you'd be like, just say you did it and get less. I In the documentary, they had the... Well, he was a QC then, but he'd be a KC now. The barrister for the boy give you know his overview of the case, which was fascinating. It's far more than it's within the report. Apparently... All of this had started 18 months previously. After moving from Leighton Buzzard to Beckles, Anita had spotted a house she absolutely had to have. A £740,000 detached house with a swimming pool in the village of Barsham, about two miles away from Beckles. Isn't she, like, highly disabled? Yeah, well, Anita had always wanted more, resented that... Others had more. She absolutely deserved that house. And her husband was going to help her get it. And her and her family would move in and she would change her name to Anita Oakfield Bennett. And they would all live happily ever after. Remember, as Cameron says, they're almost potless, living on benefits and allowances for the children. And Michael was her carer. They were lucky to be able to rent a property. I mean, I don't think just because they, they don't work and they have benefits, blah, 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 they shouldn't be able to have like a, a modicum of a good life. You're not just trying to make people survive. If he's her carer, then he should get the wages of a carer, effectively. Which is still coppers. Yeah, you're going to be it. shit. But that doesn't mean yeah. just because you're disabled and you then can't work, you don't afford some... Not a 740,000... Oh, no, that's, that's not what I'm saying. But when, I know. Yeah. I know, but she was going to get it. They were actually lucky being able to rent. A lot of landlords still will not take people on benefits, even though it's actually outside the rules. They find ways around it. No one's going to give them a, a guarantee for the, you know, the house. And as sure as night follows day, there was zero chance of getting a mortgage. But according to Anita, it would be easy. All they had to do was take out life insurance on Mandy, bump her off, and they were home free. And Michael, like the idiot he was, believed her. They managed, or probably more the case of Anita, to convince Mandy to sign some papers. Mandy was told it was to become the guardian of Anita and Michael's children should something happen to them. As we said, Anita wasn't well. We don't know what exactly was wrong with her. But it wouldn't be an unfair ask of someone that you considered your older brother to ask you to do, would you? What Anita actually used those papers for was to pretend she was Mandy. 
and the money was for the benefit of the children of her older brother and his wife. Probably, as I said, claiming that Anita would be dying soon. Turned out there were two insurance policies, a £500,000 cover from Zurich and a £300,000 one from Norwich Union. Now, the fees had to be paid each month for such cover couldn't have been cheap either, so it probably strained their already precarious finances even further. Indeed, the police had discovered a mobile phone and paperwork of Mandy's at Anita and Michael's house. They shouldn't have had either of them, and how they got them is still a mystery, but these were things like medical records, things an insurance company would want or need to know about how to activate these policies, things like how many cigarettes a day do you smoke, how much alcohol do you drink in a week. And Anita had these medical records. Nobody knows how she got them. Probably stole them at one visit to the house. The £800,000 had been calculated as the amount needed to buy the house to cover legal fees, disbursements, and a bit left over for a paint job to spruce it up, as you would do with new owners being, you know, completely naturally. I've asked this before. Hmm? You can just take out life insurance policy for someone like that, can you, as long as they sign? No. So how the fuck did they do it then? I know they got her to sign stuff. They got her to sign stuff so they had her signatures. And then what Anita did, they'd stolen a mobile phone, an old mobile phone that was Mandy's. So it could be checked back that it was Mandy's at, at some point. It was on some record set. It must have been. And they used that to set these policies up with the insurance companies with Anita pretending she was Mandy. Okay, that's what I'm thinking, because otherwise I don't see how you could get away with taking life insurance policy out, because I'd do it for any celebrity that's old. Exactly. So that's why I wasn't sure, but I guess it's because they're, they're going to such a fraudulent extent that she's impersonating Mandy to take it out on then like Mandy and Iris, whatever that is then. It used doable. to be a thing in the Victorian era that, as you know, they would have 10, 12 children because of the mortality rates of children. And they would have a regular insurance man come round and they would take out policies on the children, you know, halfpenny a week for five children kind of thing, to pay for their funeral expenses. And then parents discovered that they could get 20 whole pounds if young Daisy popped her clogs. And the funeral was only going to cost them £1.50. And it became an income, unfortunately. It did, yeah. yeah. So that's is why you cannot take, even as a parent, you cannot take out an insurance policy against somebody else's life. That you're in the care of as well, yeah. especially. Yeah. yeah. One thing people may not know, and this is big, this is a scam that's going around on social media. I've seen this. A child in the UK, under, a th- I believe it's under 18, it's definitely under 16. If they die, for whatever reason the state will pay for a funeral for them. The funeral directors do not charge you for it. If you wanted bells and whistles, horses with plumes in them, you know, brass handled... Really fancified, fan- yeah, yeah. You've got to pay for that. But at, at, And we're not talking a pauper's funeral here. We're talking a respectable, normal funeral. What you'd expect for a funeral of someone that's died. For in a child, in- yeah. So if you ever see on any social media or even a news report saying, my child is going is to be dead in six weeks or my child's just died, can you put some money into the GoFundMe for this? No. Not unless they specifically say they want to give them an extra send-off with the horses, with the blooms and all of that. It's a con. Back to the case. 
These insurance policies were due to be paid out to Anita Oakfield Bennett. They got down to planning it. Could Mandy be electrocuted? Could they poison her? Maybe get some falling masonry to land on her as she passed by a building. One of your horrors. It's not Wiley Coyote trying to catch the roadrunner. Yeah, why, it why is. Why pushing shit it, off her roof? It is. They wondered whether to uh, fake a fatal mugging, perhaps. Or how about shooting? Oh, yes. Shooting would be the preferred method. And to convince the stupid police, they would also fake a burglary of a DVD player and two handbags. And they would then glide away on pool noodles into the sunset. They put an offer in the house, which was accepted. It shouldn't have been, and doubt it wouldn't be now, as estate agents over here ask you to prove that you have the funds to purchase or provide them with the mortgage offer. They won't just, you go in and say, I want that house, yeah, I'm buying it. They, no, shows the money kind of thing. The funds were due to be transferred to the solicitors in December of 2004. Of course, they didn't even have 1% of the money, but they managed to hold off the sellers for a few weeks, which led to the events on the night of the 20th of February 2005. Their defence? Well, their son goes first. He tells the court the whole family drove all the way from Beckles, but when they got to Iris and Mandy's place, his mother, Anita, stayed in the car due to her various disabilities and his youngest siblings stayed with her whilst he and his father went into the house, his father carrying the shotgun. He must have known it wouldn't end well and it was not going to be just a nice Sunday visit at almost eight o'clock at night after driving two and a half hours. He was there as his father shot Iris and Mandy. The first shot to Iris didn't kill her. And Michael had to go back after shooting Mandy to shoot Iris again and then go back to Mandy as she tried to call for help on that mobile phone. Forensics and the boys' legal team were able to show that he hadn't ever even touched the gun and only Michael, his father, and Anita, his mother's fingerprints were on the weapon and the shotgun blast just left the residue over him as a bystander. Remember the other methods that they thought they could use to kill Mandy and Iris? Well, it turned out they'd sent their own teenage son to the local library to research and write up notes on various poisons. Obviously, that didn't work for them. Michael and Anita's defence wasn't us. We were in the car, sat outside the house after a two and a half hour drive with three younger children and our elder son went in and we heard shots. It was all him. Yes, they threw their son, who was 15 by this time, completely under the bus. Is that because they think he'd get tried as a child and he wouldn't get in trouble? That so they, they, they get away with it and he gets he gets in trouble, but he might be out by the time he's 30. Yep, and we'll get the other children back and we'll go off on our merry way. Do you think they'd try to claim that they, or, or try to attempt to get the life insurance policy? But I think under the case of murder that you're involved with, you can't yeah, exactly. get it, can you? No. Well, they might have tried... Because they could turn around and say... We didn't do it, he did. But then they could yeah. they could get done for forgery. They haven't gone after them for forgery for this. Yeah. It's, it's, when you've got two murder charges on the books, it's not worth it going after. It supersedes it, yeah. yeah. Their barristers and solicitors must have been tearing out their collective hair and their wigs off at the sheer futility of the not guilty plea. It's face palm level, isn't it? Yeah. You'd be sat there, they'd say that, and you put your hand in your head and you go, oh, for fuck. Yeah, what exactly. Have why, why have you done this? Yeah. 
Well, the, it completely wastes the court's time. And as a guilty plea could have possibly reduced a length of a sentence given if they were found guilty. But these two are just, just, well, yeah. 13th of January, 2006. The eight men and four women jury, after four days of deliberation, found the then 15-year-old not guilty of the two counts of murder, as well as not guilty on two alternatives of manslaughter. Michael and Anita, convicted of two counts of murder. There was no delay in sentencing, and the judge really did rip into the pair of them, saying Michael was a person of low intelligence and a weak character. That's just getting slam dunked by the judge, isn't it? <laughs> exactly. That's like saying legally, you're a fuckwit. Yeah, it was. That's in records and stuff. That's like permanent. That's like public knowledge now. You're of low intelligence, you're a fucking spaz. No. <laughs> he was really brutal with Anita, though. He called her the prime mover in this venture and said, you were the one who was more seriously implicated in these dreadful events, and you are the driver of these appalling crimes over a period of months by the means of cynically deceptions of Mandy in the belief that she was acting in the best interest of your children. Iris Jones had to be killed merely because she was there and because she was an impediment to your plans. The judge goes on to say, you, Michael Milcroft, were so enthralled to Anita Mansfield that you were prepared to kill your own foster mother who brought you up from a baby and lavished love on you. You had no compunction about killing your own foster sister. Neither of you throughout this trial has expressed any sorrow for the deaths of those members of your own family. Michael got 25 years as he was not the mastermind, although he pulled the trigger. Anita got 30 years. I don't think he's a mastermind of anything, no, apparently. I'm surprised he managed to put his trousers on. Backwards. Yeah. yeah. So the whole case had me thinking about TV show. In, in the UK called Grand Designs on Channel 4. I've never watched more than 10 minutes of it. 10 minutes of it. Quite not a fan of the presenter, but do occasionally read online reports about the latest show. Didn't realise it had been on TV since 1999. These are people who have a vision and will do whatever it takes to make that reality. I guess this week's case was similar, but bloody hell. How did they ever think they could afford to run a place like that, living off government benefits, which are not flipping generous in any way, shape or form? I know in the UK we don't so much have property tax, where if the value of your house goes up, you don't have to pay tax accordingly. No. We don't have that so no. much. But, but the running costs of a house that's £800,000, if it's a f they might even need to pay stamp duty on it. Well, that, that's going to be a lot of money. That's going to be, yeah, I did wonder about the stamp duty. Stamp duty is when you first buy a house, you basically have to pay for the address, don't you? That's yeah, how it works. It's, yeah, it's a government tax. Everything's a bloody government tax. The mobile phone company having a centre that deals with 999 calls may sound bonkers, but think about it. How many pocket calls must the police be getting on a daily basis? Especially when some phones you just have to press one button to contact emergency services. I don't think the time it took that operator to transfer the call to the police would have made one iota of difference to the outcome. Whenever you ring 999, it says, do you want ambulance, police or fire? Yeah. I've had that once when the woods behind our house was on fire. I was like, hello, there's a fire. Like, what do you want? Police, fireman <laughs> or ambulance? I'm like, the fireman? What do you mean? Yeah. I, I, it's, it's so it, it happens regardless. You, you always get put through to the dispatch that's going to put you through to the actual but place you want to go. But in fact, it went through to a mobile phone company emergency 
response centre. So people's mobile phones pocket call 999 all the time. If you press the lock screen three times or the lock button on a phone three times, it goes whoop, whoop, and then it tries to ring the police, which I do about once a week. Well, that's probably going to yeah. a call centre. So you can understand it because the police do not have the time or the resources to stay on top of normal emergency calls half the bloody time. So it made kind of sense because that was never mentioned in the documentary. I only found that digging through all the, the paperwork. The money aspect. I wondered if there was a resentment that Michael probably would be unlikely to inherit anything from Iris on her passing. Probably everything or the majority would go to her son. Some bits to other I relatives. There were cousins. I was going to ask about that. There it's, are it's cousins. either going to go to her son or obviously some of it will go to Mandy. She'll be treated as, in effect, yeah. the will as the daughter, even though she's not actually adopted officially. I would have thought Mandy would have been allowed to live in the house until she passed as well or something. And it, I don't think... I was going to ask, where is the son, the real son, or the biological son, I should say, during this? He literally lives around the corner, two miles away, and will come over to the work on these restored cars. You know, there was yeah. a good relationship. Mandy was his sister. What about the relationship between Michael and the son? There's never any or mention. Is it not of, mentioned? No, okay. and the, it, when he's asked about him, he doesn't say anything. Is there any contact with the other 120 foster kids that Iris had dealt with throughout her? I was a tenure. That's not the right word. Throughout her like decades of fostering kids, there's no mention of that. But the police did one of the first things they did go to do was talk to, they found out from the villagers, oh yeah, you know, I, they've she's, had... She's fostered after kids in the country. This, yeah. yeah, so they must have thought, oh my God, all these possible... Yeah, exactly, because I've, I've seen it where some kids that have been fostered in a home for a short period of time later break into the house because they're familiar with it and they know where some of the stuff is kept. Yeah. But those are sort of fostered as teenagers, not yeah. young, young kids. Mm. I, I've got no idea. Um... <sighs> Iris probably would have left something to each of those 120 children. Maybe, maybe. They weren't poor by most people's standards, but she wasn't a multimillionaire, so probably not. I've got no idea at all, all speculation, but it's no more bonkers than these two actions, is it? Why didn't they get rid of the gun? And where did it come from? That's never clarified either, and I was silently screaming at that one. But what did come out of trial, apparently, you know, shotgun pellets, they're usually quite small, Cameron, and they're designed to scatter. Yeah, well, it depends on the gauge of the shotgun, but yeah. Yeah. Well, apparently, Michael and Anita had modified the cartridges and replaced the much smaller pellets with something much, much larger, which was totally lethal and explained the damage and the talk about ID from dental records. And it's also highly illegal to modify them. You can get pellets that are sort of scatter shot and fire out in like a large bed you can buy like rip pellets which are designed to actually like rip the flesh when they go through you wouldn't use those for hunting or something because that's going to destroy the thing that you're trying to get and you can also get what are basically slugs but only certain types of shotguns can fire them which is instead of it being a scatter it's like one bigger slug of a shot yeah, uh, maybe in the states i don't know if it's different over here but what they did to those you're basically a, if you have a gun in the uk you're a farmer yeah it's basically the only reason why is you're shooting pheasants yeah i'm also surprised that the police didn't charge them for that. But again, when you've got two murder charges, there's no mention of any licenses for the guns. So I doubt in any way, shape or form it was held legally. But I do wonder how and where they got it from. So the name thing, her not taking his, her wanting to change her name to a double barreled one when she moved into the house of her dreams. Did wonder if that would have been linked to maybe benefit fraud. You get less as a married couple. When of, on benefits, if you're two single people living together, you get more money. Or generally just trying to escape from debt by changing your name. 
I also wondered at some stats I'd read at about how adoptees kill adoptive parents at a much higher percentage than birth children. And I wondered why. I think it was the figure I saw was given at 15% greater. Even that's not a flat 15%. That's 15% greater than normal matricide and patricide, isn't it? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Even though Michael hadn't been adopted, for all intents and purposes, he was Iris and Clifford's child, except perhaps for that will, maybe. There's no clear explanation in the research, to be honest. More speculation about bad seeds. But I found some cases that might do for the future. And as like as you said, Cameron, a lot of times their older teenagers are already troubled, not you know, young kids have actually... If, if they've grown up in an abusive household, that explains why they're in the foster care system to begin with. That's going to unfortunately carry some trauma with it and potential psychological or um, societal issues. Yes, anti, exactly. Anti-society, what the fuck? What's the word? Asbo, what do you get? Antisocial behaviour. That's behaviors. it, antisocial, yeah. Yeah. I mean, Michael was 10 days old when Iris and Clifford got him and gave him a home, and so, yeah, no. It's the sheer callousness of that. It gets me throwing their own child away like that. He he was disposable and a means to an end. They should have wanted more for him, but they were both incapable of that. And Michael just wanted Anita to be happy. And the judge said it. He said she, he was in thrall of her. It, it goes to say something about his intelligence, the fact that he could be convinced to kill his mother mm-hmm. and his sister mm-hmm. for the inheritance of a house. It's something he's not even guaranteed, or not even, well, for the money to get the house. Yes. Because he wouldn't have been tied to the will in any way because they had this, I guess, this argument and fallen out like 12 years ago or whatever. There was some sporadic, like, he, he does uh, come Obviously, because yeah. he, he had come back at some point because they managed to convince uh, Mandy to sign some stuff and Iris to sign some stuff. So they obviously were in contact, but I'm saying it's different. Do we not know why they argued to begin with about when they went away on holiday? I sus- I speculated. He said about the, the wedding, but why would that be a negative? Because surely from their day and age, Iris and her husband would have thought it's a good thing to get married if someone's pregnant. Maybe they didn't like Anita. Maybe they knew what she was like. Maybe She and didn't pass the sniff test. Yes. Yeah. Maybe she took against them because perhaps they advised her not you to... might have seen that she was manipulative, actually, which yeah. she was. Yeah. 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 Trial transcripts. There are none. And as said before, these things can cost thousands of pounds to get, and we don't have those kind of funds, so nothing there. But I wondered if there had been an appeal, and I do have access to... It's a website, but it's so bloody clunky, it looks like a database. And I checked on there, and they appear never to have filed one. Probably any lawyer took one look at a case like that and went, yeah, no, legal aid won't pay for this. So that's the end of this week's case. And finally, the victims who should not be forgotten. Iris Jones, aged 78. Mandy Joseph, aged 34. And adding in there, the 15-year-old son and the three other siblings who unfortunately now know they really didn't matter to the people that they should have. They really are surviving victims. And that is the end of the podcast. Thank you very much for listening. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at murderminmondaypodcast. The email is at murderminmondaypodcast at gmail.com. My Instagram is Cam Can't Focus. Some people follow me. I'm just saying it's mostly women. Don't know why. <laughs> Mostly because uh, you're topless. That, uh, gym pictures, by the way. That's nothing. These <laughs> uh, um, show notes below. You can find Patreon, etc. Podcast uploaded a week early and receives exclusives. And we'll see you next time. Much love. Peace. Bye.